All right, before we get started with this podcast, we need to talk about something. Friends, it, it feels like the whole world can literally change for the worse overnight. You're following the news stories. With what's likely coming for our country, there is one thing you should do, and that's prepare. When you're more self-reliant, you're closer to freedom from any national crisis or job loss or economic downturn. But where do you start, and who can you trust? Let me make this clear. Building an emergency food supply to feed yourself and your family is a wise first step. And our friends at My Patriot Supply will help you prepare. Get four weeks emergency food supply for only $99, shipped free. That's 140 adult servings of easy to prepare food order today 888-457-3453 888-457-3453 or go online at preparewithcr.com that's preparewithcr.com build your emergency food supply for only $99 limit two units per caller 888-457-3453 or online at preparewithcr.com that's 888-457-3453 or at preparewithcr.com. All right, now let's get to the podcast. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Happy Tuesday. Actually, Wednesday. We started on a Tuesday. I'm already off. Happy Wednesday. You're on the Steve Day Show. You're on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. We love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Coming up here in about 15 minutes, Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review is going to take us inside politics. But it didn't take long. It didn't take long. Was it, was it you the other night, Todd, that was saying uh, people that think 2017 is going to be markedly different than 2016? I'm familiar with that person. That was me. Yes. Was that you that pointed this out last night? That uh, that's, That is a, a fool's errand. Uh, you're lying to yourself if you believe that. But uh, you were sort of making the case that uh, what happened last year is going to bleed into this one? Well, you don't have a year like 2016 and expect it to get better. I mean, I think the scientific analysis is the lay of the land of 2016 shows that you are really going to have to work through some difficult things for a lot of very specific reasons. What is what is happening right now? Just with this Julian Assange stuff just just makes me want to puke. I mean, it just makes me want to puke. Sarah Palin earlier today apologized to Julian Assange on Twitter for calling him a terrorist in 2010. Sean Hannity referred to him as a terrorist in 2010 as well. I think it was 2011 or 2012, Donald Trump said that he thought uh, Assange and those behind WikiLeaks deserved, quote, the death penalty. What has changed? Does anybody know what's changed? What has changed? Oh, I know what has changed. He's embarrassing my political rivals. So he's not a terrorist anymore. That's all that changed. 
And then how about our friends on the left? They didn't seem too concerned about WikiLeaks in the Bush years. Do you remember them complaining about WikiLeaks endangering the lives of American soldiers and during the Bush years? Todd, I don't remember that. Do you remember that? I don't remember that. They were doing all his work then. In fact, I, I seem to recall that uh, their buddies in Hollywood were making movies, right? Turning him into a hero. Didn't Benedict Cumberbatch pay, play him in the film, I recall? What's changed? Oh, I know. I know what changed. He hurt the precious. That's what changed. So Golem is now mad. I had somebody ask me today when I tweeted out, it's going to be awkward in the future when those performing fluffer duty on Julian Assange now are going to be embarrassed by him in WikiLeaks later. Somebody tweeted to me, what makes you think Assange wants to embarrass Trump? Why would you think about what's best for Trump? I'm talking about what's best for the country. What's the date today? January 4th? Correct. That America first thing's already gone, guys. He's not even inaugurated yet. It's already over. It's Trump first. Many of the people on the left now that are losing their minds that Sean Hannity went to Ecuador to interview a guy. Did he go there? London. Oh, London, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Now, that he went to London to interview a guy that's been hiding out at the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Thank you for correcting me. That he went to London to interview the guy at the Ecuadorian embassy who's been living there to escape a rape charge for the last four and a half years. If he had embarrassed Trump the way that he embarrassed Hillary and the DNC, do you think so many of these alleged watchdogs on the left would have their panties in a bunch now? Because I don't. I think they'd be saying he's misunderstood. He'd be their Batman, Steve. No question. It takes Batman to go get that dude in Hong Kong to avoid extradition. That's exactly what you're referencing. No doubt. He'd be their Dark Knight. This is what political parties do to us. My, my question is, is this avoidable? And it might not be. You know, the founders loathe political parties for the very dynamic that I am explaining to you right now. One of Jefferson's best lines, I have quoted it often, if I should go to heaven, but only with members of a political party, I would rather not go at all. And yet, what was one of the very first things they did? Broke themselves down into political parties. (laughs) It may be because of the human condition and our need to be validated our need to have our team, our group win. And, and, and to not have to come to grips with objective reasoning why we may not. That might be our own fault, but somebody else's. This, this may be unavoidable. It, it may be impossible to be involved in, one of, in, in, in a political party and not become like this to some degree, eventually. I tried it for several years. Heavily involved in the Republican Party helping candidates, recruit candidates, get candidates elected. And I I just refuse to become a part of groupthink. I just wouldn't do it. I'm just not going to do it. Nobody's worth this. If I think you're right, 
I'm in. If I think you're wrong, I'm not. I'm not getting, I'm, and I'm not getting involved in factions within the party. I can't believe it, but right now I find myself retweeting Lindsey Graham. Why? Because I think he's right. Should I lie to myself? Well, my checkbook says yes. That's what you want. You want people that will lie to you and to themselves. I'm not going to do that. I'd like to be rich. Not at that cost. Not going to do it. If this is the most we ever get and we go downhill from there, I'll find something else to do for a living. I'm not going to become like this. I just, I don't want it that bad. Not at that price. I don't. I'll give you everything I have except this. This you can't have. I'm not going to become this. And eventually, even people I tried to help hated me. Had nothing to do. And it's, it, listen, I understand. I, I can be tough to get along with when I'm nice. I totally understand that. But it often people's opinions of me were based on whether I was willing to help them in their cause or their interest at that time, not whether their cause or their interest was good. I had people who couldn't spell Mike Huckabee until my show came along back in the day. Then when I didn't back him this time, I was the worst human being. My daddy should have wore a condom that night. It was so bad. Why is the golden calf coming to mind, Steve, when you're talking well, and, about and, this? And, and what happens is... Everybody says, I, I don't worship a golden calf, but they have a golden squirrel instead. A golden chipmunk, a golden remote control, a golden something else. Idolatry is love, idolatry is life, Steve. You didn't get that memo? I, I did not. I'm, I'm not going to be... I have my own crosses to bear. I have my own moral weaknesses. I do 15 hours of radio a week, so you're probably well accustomed to them by now. This, though, I'm not going to do. Because my experience has shown historically there's no coming back from this kind of thinking. And this is often why you see in the scriptures when idolaters are confronted, it is with very provocative language. Like Isaiah asking the idolaters of his day, which, how do you know which side of the wood to burn and which side of the wood of your idol to worship? How do you know? Because people can't be reasoned with. They almost have to be verbally slapped. That's some trolling Hard. right there. Yes. Or Elijah saying at Mount Carmel, I don't know, maybe you're, maybe you're idle. Maybe he's on the throne taking a dump. He can't answer you right now. Maybe he's busy. Cut yourselves more. Yell louder. Scream harder. Maybe you'll get him off the toilet. But, but we live in a world where I, I, you, you seemingly are unable to draw any distinctions. And it's really sad to watch. The guy's not already, not even president yet, and we're already doing this. And then to watch the people on the left, who if the shoe is on the other foot, here's a pretty good rule. You guys tell me what you think of this. I thought of this earlier today. How do you know if you are a political hack slash idolater? How do you know this? If, the, if you had the same situation, but the circumstances would revert, were, were reversed, what would your position be? And that's how you know.
listening to Steve Dace. Your Daily Truth Project. This is Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. For the first time in 2017, we go inside politics with Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review. Daniel, it is good to have you back, my friend. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thank God the nightmare of 2016 is over. Yeah, apparently it was the worst year ever or something. Um, but uh, we are moving on now to 2017. And it appears some uh, some of the dangling participles of 2016 still linger. Case in point, can you tell me, we talked about this at the top of the show tonight, Daniel, can, can you tell our audience, when did Julian Assange become some sort of hero? I mean... Sarah Palin apologized to him on Twitter today after calling him a terrorist a few years ago. Hannity went to Ecuador to interview him there at the Ecuadorian embassy because he's been living there for four years to dodge a a rape uh, uh, extradition uh, from uh, Sweden. Um, I mean, in, in the Bush years, this guy was considered uh, by most of us on the right to, uh, to uh, at, at the very least be an anarchist, maybe an enabler of terrorism. Where, where did he when, when did we start fluffing this guy? Do you know when did this start? Well, look, when this guy starts leaking stuff about Trump, rest assured that the right will go back to the Bush years on him. But more broadly, you're right. This binary idolatry that we lamented throughout 2016, it's here to stay. Here's what we're going to have for the remainder of the next couple of years, unless something changes. Everything Republicans do that's bad and the media criticizes and the Democrats criticize. Well, the Democrats did it. And the media didn't care then. I'm like, well, yeah, that's true. But how about we stand for something affirmatively positive and conservative that's different than both of them? But th- this is the binary thing. If the media opposes it, then we must support it. If the media supports it, we must oppose it. And look, the media is bad. The Democrats are bad. But it doesn't make everything Trump and the Republicans do to be good. But this is something that's evidently a lost art on much of the public. And this works both ways. I mean, let's face it, if Assange and his uh, his WikiLeaks, if they had, had embarrassed the Republicans during the last election, we would have many people on the left, including in the left media, who are now pointing out that this guy is an anarchist at best, an enabler of terrorism at worst, uh, would would be doing all they'd be the ones doing the fluffing and Hannity and Palin would be re repeating their tweets from 2010, calling him a terrorist. We know that's true. No, definitely. And and that's the thing. No one disagrees with the fact that the media and the Democrats, and I hate to repeat myself there, but both of them are, you know, they're a, a lot of hypocrites. But it doesn't mean it gives us a license to be wrong and hypocritical, too. I like the way that Tom Cotton dealt with this issue. Instead of kissing up to Russia, well, the Democrats are bashing Russia, so we have to be pro Russia. He attacked Democrats for being the source of kissing up to Russia with the New START nuclear disarmament throughout Obama's tenure, many other ways with the reset button. That's the way you oppose Democrats, the media, and Putin at the same time and do what's right. How are we going to function as conservatives in this kind of environment? How, how is this even possible where we live now, and he's not even president yet, and we have the, 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 the next president of the United States um, deciding on Twitter that, to take Julian Assange's uh, take that his leaks didn't come from Russia 
over his own intelligence community. But let's face it, it's not as if the intelligence community has been infallible uh, in a pre and post 9-11 world either. I mean, the normal assurances, alliances just don't seem to come into play anymore other than if it helps my guy, like a guy said to me on Twitter, well, what makes you think Assange would, would leak stuff on Trump? I'm like, I don't care what he leaks on Trump. This is about what's best for America. What what happened to you guys' uh, America first stuff? So it, it seems to be, and you use the old-fashioned word idolatry, it seems to be the only thing you can take for granted is that if it helps the guy wearing my jersey, then it's good, and if it doesn't, it's bad, regardless of the objective properties therein. I mean, I think there is an element of the so-called conservative media Republican base that is irremediably broken. It's lost that, you know, Trump could go out and support amnesty and then they'll suddenly say it's a good idea because, well, Trump said it is. But I do think, you know, certain issues are complicated. Russia is complicated. But, um, you know, refugee resettlement and Obamacare are not. And, and those at its core are the issues for which Trump got a mandate to get elected. And I think if, if you start seeing Republicans go south on those issues and conservatives raise hell about it, then it's going to be very hard to get a significant part of the base to start praising that. I, I really think there is hope on certain issues that are just manifestly um, unadulteratable. <laughs> you know, you just can't confuse things. You can't muddle it enough. And I think if they wind up preserving Obamacare, which I think they're about to do, um, it's going to be very hard for the idolatry to kick in and defend that. All right, that's where I wanted to go next because that seems to be the first test of your theorem, right? What's going to, what is going to happen there? You had Mike Pence uh, meeting with Paul Ryan and the House Republicans today, saying this will be the number one priority of the administration, and yet you've got Mike Lee and Ted Cruz sort of launching their own separate repeal effort, which would seem to indicate they're not satisfied with the with the one that uh, we are at least being shown uh, in the public between the next uh, administration and the existing GOP leadership. So what's really going on here? So, I mean, Trump and Pence are kind of silent, and I think we'll know in the next couple of weeks. But as far as the GOP congressional leadership, nothing has changed. Let's let's make something very clear. The official view of the Chamber of Commerce K Street GOP leadership since 2013 has been to fix not to repeal Obamacare. That's their official position. And it's not necessarily what they message. But the problem is that due to the complexity of healthcare, the lack of understanding semantically what Obamacare actually is, the complexity of the budget reconciliation uh, process, and also just the sheer preconceived notion that Trump's going to usher in some new optimism. Nobody would believe or understand that Republicans actually don't intend to repeal it. But if nothing changes, absent a grassroots revolt, that is exactly what's going to happen. What they are going to do now is not repeal the insurance coverage mandates, the regs that are solely responsible for destroying health insurance in this country. Um, They're just repealing most of the funding mechanisms, the subsidies, the tax increases, but maybe not even all those. Then they are using that revenue instead of using it for deficit reduction. They are using it for their replacement plan. Now, as I just said, they're not really repealing the main part of Obamacare, but their so-called replacement plan is a massive new refundable tax credit uh, entitlement program that is going to cost so much money that they have to preemptively capture all the Obamacare uh, expenditures to use it for Obamacare 2.0, make Obamacare great again. When you say they're not going to, they're not going to repeal the uh, regulations. What, what exactly are you talking about? Can you give our audience some examples? Sure. Very simple. Why 
have my premiums gone from 450 a month to 1200 a month and then even after paying 1200 a month you get nothing until you pay a 13,000 deductible for this coming year why um why have has insurance gone up so much why is there no choice in competition why is the market destroyed it's not because of the individual mandate the requirement to purchase insurance that's unconstitutional it's nanny state um it's not enumerated power to government it's not bad in terms of policy the subsidies is that's what are the subsidies raising the cost not really they're supposed to cover the cost tax increases is that is that what's doing they they, they might be bad policies no at its core, the turkey, not the stuffing or the gravy, the cranberry sauce, the turkey of Obamacare is the pre-existing condition mandate, the community rating, the requirement of the scope of coverage that insurers must offer only plans that are actuarially insolvent. That is not going away. All right, we'll come back more with Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Where nine black-robed masters don't get to become their own self-appointed constitutional convention. The Steve Day Show. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. Daniel Horowitz is here with us, taking us inside politics, as he does each Wednesday night at this time. So I want to go back to what you were just saying about this sort of uh, fool's gold uh, GOP effort to repeal Obamacare that you're talking about, which is it sounds almost like the worst of both worlds. So you're going to repeal the mandate and the subsidies that prop it up, but you're going to leave the regulations in place that required the subsidies in the first place. Am I am I reading you right on that? Oh, my gosh. That is exactly the point. This is a nightmare scenario. You know, Republicans never want to do bold things. What's their religion? The, you'll you'll hear this term manage, manage the decay as jc watch used to tell me yes yeah but but why because they say quote we will be blamed right that should be the gop motto we will be blamed but in reality what they'll actually be blamed for here is the worst of both worlds like you just said you're going to have what's called adverse selection because on the one hand you're still requiring insurance companies to offer only insolvent plans but on the other hand you're taking away even like when you say things like community rating this is the idea that you your coverages are not your the cost of your coverage is not determined by your health as much as the community you're in or the risk pool that you're in on a more on a more macro or centralized collectivized scale that's what you're talking about right exactly so guaranteed issue that you have to cover everyone under any circumstance and then and men men get covered for pap smears and cervical exams even though we don't have those sex change operations and then on top of that community rating that you can't even say, all right, I'll offer it to those with pre-existing conditions, but it will have to be at a higher um, cost. No. So therefore, everyone now has to pay another mortgage, and, and we're just in the third year. So anyway, you take away the subsidies and the requirement that people purchase, and then certainly you're going to get nothing because without the requirement, heck, I drop my insurance now. I'm paying more for my insurance now than the cost of what I used to insure against just a couple of years ago. So that is going to be maintained in place. And guess who's going to get blamed for it? Because the messaging that goes out to the public, because the media doesn't understand what Obamacare is, up, 
ding dong, the witch is dead. Uh, the Republicans repealed the signature legislation of Obama. Obamacare is gone. So next October, people expect their premiums to decline back to the, what they were, the baseline of what they're used to paying, and that doesn't happen, right? And they'll continue to go up even more. Let me play devil's advocate for a second and, and, and say, what about the argument that the mandates and the subsidies are Obamacare's thermal exhaust port? to use a Star Wars reference. And if you just blow those away, the thing will collapse on its own. What about that argument? Well, it is collapsing on its own, but it's all a question of who gets blamed for it. Um, you know, that that might have been a strategy. Let's say we would have had a hypothetical ability when we don't we didn't have the White House not to repeal all of Obamacare, but to repeal those funding mechanisms. Yeah, it would collapse. Democrats would get blamed for it. But now it's on your watch. You have all three branches. You're saying you're repealing it. And here's the result. Everything else is just window dressing. So you're talking about taking an issue that's won them, that played a big part in them winning the last two elections in 2014, especially, but also in 2016. You're talking about, in your view, they're going to take this issue that they've won on, and they're going to they're going to turn it into a loser, is what you're talking about. Well, you're describing the Republican modus operandi for everything: take <laughs> eighty twenty issues and turn them into twenty eighty issues. To and what end? To what end? Why would why would they do this? What are they thinking, Daniel? Couple things. Um, K Street and all the industries actually uh, they they only oppose the aspects of Obamacare that are opposed by the industries. Number two, honestly. You can't fight if you don't believe, and you can't believe if you don't understand. And these people don't understand health care policy. They have adopted the premises of the left-wing um, philosophy on health care. And, and, and their incoming president has said on more than one occasion publicly he believes in universal coverage. Exactly. I mean, you're not going to get positive energy from him. I mean, this is where I think Mike Pence, this is his time to shine. He has a very good working relationship with Congress. He's very well respected. He knows the system. Uh, Trump will give him a lot of, uh, you know, authority because Trump doesn't know much about this. This is his time to shine. Is your position looking at this politically, they are better off either repealing the whole thing or leaving it in place? Is that your position? It, unfortunately, it literally is my position. If they are, if they don't change what they're about to do, it is better if they do nothing and continue to just politically blame it on the Democrats. Because policy-wise, our country, our economy is going to be destroyed, and politically, we're going to get blamed for it. Hmm. How about Rand Paul saying yesterday that they shouldn't repeal Obamacare without a replacement? I. I that's a heck of a libertarian thing to do. Don't get rid of a government program to have another one take its place. That's that I found to be kind of odd. Daniel Horowitz is here with us from Conservative Review, taking us inside politics. When we come back, we're going to talk immigration policy next. Listening to Steve Dace. Making all the right enemies, Steve Dace. Here on Inside Politics on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Daniel Horowitz is here with us from Conservative Review. I read a piece from you uh, earlier today, Daniel, 
some of uh, some suggestions you have that, that you think are politically popular that could be done in regards to immigration and national security right now. Kind of give our audience with their appetite a little bit. Some of the uh, some of the ideas that you have in there. I think there were 20 of them, correct? 20 ideas. So a lot there. But the, the broad point is this. As it relates to fiscal policy, I think we already understand it's a dumpster fire. Republicans aren't conservative. Trump isn't conservative. You know, we're not going to do conservative tax or entitlement reform. It's just not happening. We'll be happy to come away without tossing an interception. We're not tossing a, you know, a, a touchdown. But I think as it relates to the nexus of immigration, homeland security, and terrorism, all those issues, that is at its core Trump's mandate. So I thought of issues that, to me, are broadly consequential. They're solid singles or doubles. They're very impactful, but they're not comprehensive kind of overhauls that are very complicated. They're very easy to message and should be very, very popular and could be accomplished. So things like cutting off welfare and driver's licenses for illegals, ending sanctuary cities, ending the diversity visa lottery, um, you know, fixing asylum loophole, allowing states to veto refugee resettlement, things that are very easy to message. Um, you know, cut off foreign aid to countries that refuse to repatriate their illegal immigrants. These are all issues that you could put Democrats on defense. You know, for terrorism, defund the UN and the PLO. What better timing? You're never going to have better momentum behind that. Uh, designate the Muslim Brotherhood as a terror group. Uh, you know, Ted Cruz has a bill to strip ISIS fighters of their citizenship and passports through due process. These are issues that are they're one-offs. They're one in a kind. They're isolated, but they're impactful, easy to message. In other words, it's something that a stupid party would never do. Well, many of these are things that, that Donald Trump ran for successfully ran for president on, Daniel. And that's my point. You're not going to get Trump, you know, to uh, support private Social Security accounts. That's just not going to happen. I mean, he stood he stood up there in the in a debate last fall. Uh, in the Republican primary, or two falls ago now, as it's we're into 2017, and and tried clumsily, had needed Rand Paul's help that night, as I recall, but he actually tried to make the case to end birthright citizenship or the so-called anchor baby phenomenon. And, and that's probably the the heaviest of the 20 issues. In other words, I guess the least simple. Um, but but almost all of them, like I said, they're easy to message. It's not just Daniel's wish list of best conservative policies, although I think they're all good. It's things that I believe are achievable. They're easy to message. And they're all things that at least on paper Trump should or has already supported. How much how many of your items are things that Trump has constitutional authority to do on his own? How many of them are things right now if if if, if he doesn't have those, those that kind of authority? Uh, there's somebody in Congress working to put them on his desk. Sure. So almost every one of them, I have a specific bill number that I hope the conservative Freedom Caucus uses. So that's why I use specific language. Mm -hmm. um, but most of them have to be done legislatively. And that's why I picked this list. Uh, if I have time, I'm going to come up with a, a separate uh, um, executive order list. But as it relates to the DACA, Obama's embassy, that should be gone the first hour after the inaugural ball. And that will be a very interesting litmus test. Because that, that should be gone. All the you know subsidies for that, the welfare, driver's licenses, social security cards, that should be gone from day one. What's your take on the way things are heading down the stretch of the transition? You know, Steve, I just don't know. And, and I think... That's, I, neither do I. That's and, why and I I'm asked not, you. But I think there isn't an <laughs> affirmative answer, and I don't know. I, I do get the sense that there will be kind of a jailbreak 
for conservatives with this administration, each man for himself. And he kind of just run around and we have to pick up as many goodies as we can. I think because it's decentralized, because it's conflicted and all sorts of people and he doesn't have certain views, I think there will be spheres of policy in the administration where you have some good guys in place where we can make some strides while at the same time he'll be doing some awful things. We have to limit the damage from the awful things and and um, try to get as many good things, which is why I have an agenda to kind of sideline a lot of fiscal policy. Not that I don't think it's important, but I just don't think we're going to have anything good coming out of it. Just try to say, look, Trump, I know you want a trillion dollar stimulus. Let's shelve that until year two and have that fight then. Focus on your national security, immigration and repeal Obamacare mandate. One issue that uh, was probably the biggest one since you and I last talked before the holiday. Uh, and that is uh, the Obama regime's last-ditch attempt to undermine Israel on the way out the door uh, with uh, their refusal to stop that U.N. Security Council resolution condemning Israel. And then Secretary of State John Kerry the next day saying that Isra- the Israelis will have to choose between being Jewish and being democratic if they want peace. Your overall viewpoint of, of that moment, and, and I said to our audience last night, I thought it was one of the most extraordinary moments in American foreign policy in my lifetime. Did I blow that out of proportion or not? Wow, a lot going on. First of all, it's born out of their view that America can't be Christian and democratic either. Meaning right, progressives don't believe anything can come before self-actualization. Nothing transcended at all. Nothing. No, so that, that that's kind of – it kind of bores – it's born out of their religious view that you can only be Islamic and democratic but not uh, Christian and Jewish or uh, democratic. But I think broadly speaking, I, there is a part of me that really admires Obama and Kerry – that man, these guys have balls. I mean, they just say they, you know, how do you really feel? Right, we've they long known it. they believe this, but to hear them say it out loud, I thought was was rather breathtaking. No, it is, especially at a time when the PLO just elected a guy serving five life sentences for killing babies in in the Israeli prison, and um, you know, you're just having Muslims blow things up around the world, and they're focused on a couple of Jewish homes on some um, some uh, Judean hilltops. But uh, I, I think broadly, the real question is, we know how bad the left is. But this is, like I said, on my top 20 list. This is the test for Republicans and Trump. I understand we're not going to overhaul our welfare state. But by golly, could we freaking just eliminate $500 million a year for the PLO? Is that too hard? But yet tomorrow, Republicans on Thursday in the House plan on voting on a vacuous resolution to say we disagree with the U.N. That's going to serve as nothing but a loincloth to Schumer and the Democrats. They'll vote for it, too, and it won't actually do anything. I don't mind that as step one, but if it's not part of a broader effort to defund the U.N. and the PLO once and for all, what purpose do we have electing Republicans? Daniel Horowitz always brings it strong here from Conservative Review Inside Politics each Wednesday here on the Steve Day Show. Daniel, thank you, my friend. We'll do it again next week. Thank you. Great to be back. We'll come back and have some reaction to what you just heard because you heard quite a bit in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. promise you'd like him he just promised to tell you the truth this is steve dace well clearly our friend daniel horowitz is well rested from the break 
Because he brought it pretty strong here tonight in his first Inside Politics of 2017. Gentlemen, did you hear anything that stood out to you from Daniel? Uh, two things. One, first of all, I completely agree with him uh, on his take on the transition of being, I have no idea. I, I'm, I'm, I try to give my best takes on things that develop and things that have developed between where we are now and November 8th. And it's almost impossible, well, in the back of your head, you know that tomorrow uh, it could be something completely different. Something Trump says one day is going to be completely the opposite tomorrow. So that's, I mean, that's been uh, fairly frustrating, um, especially when part of your job is to give your take on these things. And then on the other side, uh, going back to your conversation on the repeal of Obamacare, yeah, it seems really nice that the Republicans are actually doing something they said they'd do um, for a long time now that they actually have... Uh, all three, well, control of uh, two out of the three uh, branches of, of government. But at the same time, it doesn't ever seem, I haven't, gotten the, uh, I haven't gotten the feeling or the notion that this is anything to do with actually solving problems that are afflicting many Americans, like Daniel talked about, his premiums rising. And you never get that sense. Of course, the rhetoric is there. The rhetoric's always been there. It's always about what is going to be best for me and for my party politically. And they're even bad at that. Because what they're doing right now, as Daniel outlined, with this repeal and hopefully, in their minds, hopefully replacing it, uh, this is going to turn out very badly for them, I think. Steve, when you talk to Daniel from now on, I think your intro is, so Daniel, give me the latest update on how the field goal presidency is doing. You know, he doesn't want turno no turnovers, but we're probably not going to get touchdowns. We're just going to chip away with field goals. That's what Daniel said we can look for. And I guess, considering everything we saw in 2016, that is the best we can hope for. As far as health care, I've beaten this dead horse before. But uh, Kevin Williamson at National Review did a fantastic article about this t uh, today. You know, we have... We're not supposed to be talking about health care policy. We're insurance is not health care policy. Insurance is fiscal policy. It is mm -hmm. about managing risk. When we want to paint our bedroom in our house, we don't apply it to our homeowner's policy. We go out and we buy the paint. We're supposed to be doing that in terms of regular doctor's visits, things like that. That's what happens in a grown-up, sane world. But you talk to a lot of Republicans, even people who fashion themselves as conservatives, and their heart starts beating, and they tell, well, pre-existing conditions and compassionate conservatism and things like that. That is not insurance. It just isn't. And until we get that, and we won't anytime soon, I fear, we aren't going to fix this like Daniel said. I think we don't have a clue what's going to happen. I don't. Because I don't think the guy who's going to be calling the shots has a clue what's going to happen. And I think like you saw him with this ethics office this week, just come out of the blue, put a Twitter blast up, and the next morning Republicans reverse themselves. I think you're going to see a lot of that the next four years going both ways, which is why I've been counseling people since the election. Pace yourself. You're listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. Come on. 
And we're back with Hour 2 here at the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Don't forget, it is a Wednesday night. That means coming up in hour number three, our very first Worldview Wednesday of 2017. So that's coming up in the third hour. But one of my favorite social media follows and a guy that does as good a job as anybody covering faith issues in our culture joins us now. Billy Hallowell is here with us from Faithwire. And Billy, it's good to have you on the show tonight, brother. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well. And, you know, I want to get a big picture view from you before we get to some of the things you've written recently at Faithwire. What is the state of faith in America as you see it right now? And, of course, our show kind of touches this sweet spot between faith and what goes on in the political arena at the exact same time. So so those of us who who serve primarily in politics maybe put too much of a priority into how much what happens in the political realm shapes the way Americans view faith. But uh, and, and maybe there's a great big world out there that isn't as you know fixated on this political stuff as we are that maybe sees things differently. But where do you come down on that, Billy? Yeah, you know, I think it's a really interesting question because right now things are sort of complicated on the, on the faith front. I think we kind of have a situation in which we we know we've seen in media, we've seen reports there's a lower proportion of people saying they're Christian. You know, when you look from 2007 to 2014, um, when Pew really put together their last range of data, there was like an eight percentage point decrease. It went from about 78% of the country. Now, these, this is nominal, though, too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, not everybody's really a Christian, really living a Christian lifestyle. But um, the point is, it went from 78% down to 70%, which is a pretty steep drop in a seven-year period. And I think the reason we're seeing drops like that and the reason we're seeing confusion, and I think we have a lot of weird theological ideas that are sort of coming about, is because I believe we, we sort of live in this world where the media, where entertainment, where universities are, are really driving home you know, sort of an agenda, one worldview that isn't necessarily in line with the values that you know, Christianity espouses. And so I think we're starting to see some of that take effect in society and really, and what really freaks me out, I mean, I'm I'm 33, so I'm on the upper end of the millennial scale. You look at the millennials and I mean, my generation is the most disconnected from faith and I believe it's because we've been the most impacted by those three areas, you know, Mm -hmm. media, entertainment, and, and universities. So, I mean, I think the simple answer is it's really complicated, but on the flip side, I think we're also seeing a lot of people in this country react to the past eight years to feeling sort of downtrodden, pushed back. And I think some of that's complicated by the election. Obviously, the person who won is not somebody who we would typically associate with Christianity um, in many ways. But I, but I still think under all of that, I mean, the Chip and Joanna Gaines story, right, the, the whole BuzzFeed thing, we're seeing the fruit of some of that play out now in the way that they've reacted, the Gaines family, and the way that the public has reacted. So I think a lot of Christians are getting a little bolder and, and feeling like, okay, you know, we, we felt pushed back against and now we need to be a little bit more vocal. One of the things that I saw within the whatever sliver or slice of Christendom, American Christendom, Christian conservative political activism represents, mm-hmm. and, and who knows, right? So 
But but whatever sliver or slice of American Christendom that world represents, and that's the world I'm immersed in on a daily basis and have a lot of friends and, and contacts in this world. And one of the things I saw in this election, and there's always exceptions, right? But as a general rule, and I, I mean, I even saw this within organizations and within, within their offices, that the chances of somebody under the age of 35 in that, in that office being never Trump was much greater than if they were 55. And if, if they were 55 or in that age, th- there was this idea that, yeah, the guy's terrible, but we can't afford this and we've got to, we, it's the only alternative we have. If they were younger, uh, and you know, I'm 43, so I'm right in the middle of this, right? So I'm getting, I got, I've got friends on both sides of this generational divide, each trying to convince me of the rightness of their position. Uh, and, and, and the younger people were sort of like, this represents everything we are trying to tell the next generation we are not. Yeah. And if we go along with this, we're going to hurt our long-term brand beyond this election. And I thought both sides had valid areas and concerns mm-hmm. um, and often j- didn't really talk to each other about them. But sort of uh, I think the millennial generation backseat drove uh, the older generation, having not real many of them not, not had kids, not had families, not had to make not had to make decisions in a world that has fallen that you don't always get to make the ideal choice. Right. But on the other hand, I thought the older generation sort of looked at the newer generation and said, hey, you're a bunch of schmucks that you don't want to make all the moral compromises that we've been making for the last 20 years. And and I sat here in the middle, and and I always had the position I'm not voting for Trump because I don't think he represents my values. Right. Um, but I don't fault people who will. What really bothered me was this idea of turning him using phrases like God's anointed, or yeah. or, 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 or 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 elevating him as, to some sort of mythological heroic status, as opposed to. Hillary Clinton has a gun pointed at the Church of Jesus Christ said in America, I have to vote against her. I get that. Just do that then. So, I mean, I know I just I, I sort of described for you a lot of things happening simultaneously, but that really was a dynamic I saw a lot of in this past year, Billy. Well, and I think what you bring up is so interesting because I said it's complicated, right? And one of the things, I actually have a book coming out in March about entertainment media and in universities and the effect that they've had. And when we talk about millennials, they're the most disconnected. I think there's a lot of concern when it comes to faith and the church is sort of failing and reaching younger people. But, um, and this sort of speaks to what you just said, I think, the people who are millennial evangelicals, especially, they are among the most devoted. It's a smaller group than previous generations um, in terms of the percentage, but but they're much more devoted to the cause. And I think that is really interesting. And I've experienced that just even in New York. I mean, there's there's a group of you know prominent young evangelicals in, in the city here. And you, you kind of see that and, and the whole mindset with Trump of saying, you know, look, we're not going to compromise on this. So I think I think there's an element of that, that when people do it here and when millennials do it here, they're a little bit stronger, um, ironically, than than those because they have to be. I mean, we're in a generation of people who are much more disconnected. And so I think that in a sense does embolden the smaller group um, of young Christians. But, you know, on the flip side to what you just said, I do think the strange dynamic and the disturbing dynamic in this whole electoral process was watching Christians fawn all over Trump. I understood, just like you said, you know, at the last minute, even making that doing doing the Trump thing, going for Trump 
What I didn't understand. I mean, Hillary was, Clinton is literally on national television saying, I'm going to use government to put a gun to the head of your faith if I get elected. I understand voting against her. That's not the argument you and I are making here, right? Exactly. No, I think I think the problematic part for me, all of these Christian leaders who were endorsing Trump when they had 16 other options. Yes. Right? Yep. <laughs> That's the part I didn't understand. I got it once we knew Trump was the candidate. And I had said I wasn't going to vote for either of them. And then I had to make a decision when I got closer. And I know I had plenty of friends who who didn't vote for either of them and voted third party. I, I know people who didn't vote at all um, for president, just left it blank and voted um, for you know other positions. But I, fi- I find it fascinating to me why so many prominent evangelicals and Christians more broadly went for him so early on. And I do I do think, you know, when we talk about that negative influence of media entertainment and, and all that, you know, you wonder how much of that's impacted some of the older generation, too, although I think there's that level of panic that maybe started early on. And you see this guy who's basically a bully um, who's knocking every, all the other pins down, and, and you think, okay, well, he's going to be our hope. And uh, one last point I would make, I think it's fascinating, all of these surveys where evangelicals said, no, we would never vote for somebody who didn't have good values, that changed in 2016. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but yep. you know, polls show that evangelicals suddenly had no problem voting for somebody who wasn't necessarily a moral person. Uh, so that's intriguing. That might also be idolatry, another I word, depending on the way you look at it, right, where I'm conforming my values to the uh, to the idol of my adoration at the moment. But this thing, you, this dynamic generationally that that erupted on the in the political arena, I think it has cross uh, cross currents across the culture in, in that it shows your generation, Billy, just doesn't have the regard for the, the traditional means of carrying out their values. The previous generations have had because you've seen many of those institutions betray those values or let you down. So there's no reason to carry water for them. That's the way you see it, right? I do. And, and I also think when you let's say you don't go to church, you didn't grow up with it. I mean, you, you look out there and you look at the landscape, you look at what comes across your, your iPhone, what you see on the Internet. There really are not any influences out there, um, you know, that are not a lot anyway, in mainstream culture that reflect the values um, that Christianity espouses. And I know that we'd love to complain, and, and I would love to come back on the show when the, the book comes closer because I go deep into this, but we love to complain as Hold it right there. I'm up against a break. I want to let you finish this point when we come back. Billy Hallowell is here with us from faithwire.com. Stay tuned. You're listening to Steve Dace. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us God. The Steve Day Show. All right, back here with Billy Hallowell from faithwire.com. He's our guest here on the Steve Day Show. He's a great social media follow, also does maybe the best job of anybody I know of out there covering faith issues. And he does it, yeah, he, he's a man of faith himself, but he really approaches it with a certain level of objectivity that uh, I think is, is, is frankly lacking in a lot of journalism. I've, I've seen him take some, uh, some very, uh, you know, contentious debates and cover both sides of them objectively. So I really appreciate Billy's work. And, and you were lamenting our desire to complain about things as believers. And as a talk show host, of course, uh, complaining about things is in my job description. So go ahead, Billy, and uh, finish that thought. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, no, my, my rant about, you know, our compl- look, I have no problem with complaining, especially when it's warranted. I think that's fine. But we love to complain as conservatives and evangelicals about 
the fact that we don't have any representation on popular TV shows or anywhere else, really, in universities. There's not a lot of conservatives and not a lot of Christians in mainstream universities. But the fact is, look, on one level, yes, they're, they're, those voices are constrained. They're not present. But the other part of the problem that we never like to talk about is that a lot of us have retreated from those areas, partly because we've been mistreated, but also because you know, we just don't want to be a part of it. We don't want any attachment to it. And, you know, I understand some of that, but I but I also think we need Christians and conservatives to be professors to get into not just becoming actors and performers, but behind the scenes producers. You know, not everybody's cut out to do that, but we need people in those areas of influence because, you know, we're we're losing out and our voices aren't being represented and they're not there. And some of that's just the natural reflection of where the world will go. And we can have a whole theological conversation about that. But I think some of us need to do a better job. I mean, look, you've got a presence. You're here with a show. Lots of conservatives are doing that, but we need more people out there, I think, making a difference and, and in having their voice be part of that discussion. We've got a new Congress coming in. Uh, actually just came in this week, uh, a new member's being sworn in. You've got something up at FaithWire about what this new Congress really believes. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, this is this is fascinating. It's it's a Pew Research analysis of some data from CQ. And basically, um, for the last 50 years, Congress has been, I think it was back in 1961, 1962, 95% of Congress call, you know, called themselves Christians. So again, who knows how many of them were nominal. But this year, the new Congress, the 115th Congress, 91% still claim to be Christians. And so really, when you look, we go back to those numbers of the general public, you have 70% of Americans saying they're Christian. We have 91% of you know politicians in Congress saying that they're Christians. Now, again, could be nominal. But the fascinating thing, 293 Republicans were elected this past cycle. 291 of them are Christians and two of them are Jewish. Um, and I just, it, it made me laugh a little bit. I thought, wow, you've got literally the vast majority, only two who are not Christians. And among Democrats, of course, that uh, those numbers are, are a little bit different. About 80% are Christian. But the one thing that stuck out the most to me, 10 people in Congress refused to give their religious perspective, and they were all Democrats. So hmm. I thought that was kind of intriguing. If we were to ask them, what does that mean to you? If you claim to be a Christian, because, you know, I was heavily involved with the Cruz campaign in the last primary. And so I got access to a lot of their data and they had one of the best data machines I've ever seen a conservative campaign have. And because we had all these polls, Billy, that showed Trump getting all this evangelical support. What we found when we did the real data is that if if, if you if you claim to be an evangelical, particularly in the southern state, and a lot of those people, frankly, because um, uh, because uh, Ellie Mae looks great in her Easter dress uh, on Peach Street, uh, Peachtree Street. They take her to church once or twice a year, and the rest of the year, you know, they're teeing it high, watching it fly, or they're out there at the gun range, or they're at the NASCAR event. But because that's the culture that they are immersed in, they all think they're evangelicals. When we asked them questions like, "When was the last time you went to church? When when what was your last what was the last sermon about? Can you name your pastor or your priest?" It was fascinating. And I look at a state like Missouri, for example, if if you claim to be an evangelical but didn't go to church on a regular basis, you voted for Trump over Cruz in that state by 20 points. But if you claim to be an evangelical and went to church on a regular basis, meaning at least twice a month, you voted for Cruz by 20 points. And so I'm, 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 I'd be curious to know 
When these people say they're Christians, what does that really mean, right? Because Jesus told us that whole by their fruit you will know them thing, right? I mean, anybody can yeah. we live we live in an era where I can self-identify my own gender, for goodness sake. So if <laughs> if I mean just saying I'm something doesn't mean I am, does it? No, it doesn't. And I think you also have this added dynamic of in America, you think you need to say that you're a Christian to win. But now what this shows is at the least, and I, I don't know everybody's heart in Congress, but at the least, uh, people still think it's really important, despite all the claims about religious religion dying, people still believe it's very important to campaign as Christians, at least on the Republican side and 80% on the Democratic side. It, that is fascinating to me. Now, I will say a lot of the things that Hillary Clinton was saying this past election cycle, I think for the first time... Um, as a political candidate, we saw her opening up about faith, and that was a sign, a troubling sign to me because it was sort of like saying, okay, well, I'm a Christian, and the culture is so messed up right now that I can actually talk about all of these things like Planned Parenthood and everything else and associate that with Christianity, and enough people will still believe that that's true and that's okay. Um, so I don't you know, I don't know. I would, I would imagine a lot of these people, much like a lot of the 70% of Americans, um, are probably nominal. And I think your point about church attendance, how often you pray, how often are you reading your Bible, those are the real indicators of how strong of a Christian you really are. Um, and some polling firms have done a good job of, of figuring that out, but we don't get much of that data in this Pew analysis. Tell us about faithwire.com. Why our audience wants to go there, what sets you guys apart? You know, I think one of the cool things about Faithwire is that a number of the people from our team uh, were formerly from The Blaze. And so one thing that we had a chance to do when I was at The Blaze was really build up a faith vertical that we felt was strong, offered people different perspectives and approached the news fairly. Um, you know, looking at things objectively, but tailoring them to the audience that we had. And that audience at The Blaze was, was Christian um, pri primarily. And the audience at Faithwire is overwhelmingly Christian as well. Um, I, I've just really felt, and I know people on our team have felt that, you know, there, there's sort of there's so many good sites for Christians to go to, but I think there are certain there's a certain feel that we wanted to have with the content and have a really good mix of content, viral news, um, but all things that people that Christians care about, and so that's what that's what we're working to do. I think we're courting a lot of younger. Um, Americans, millennials, uh, but also older individuals as well. And it's a great place to go if you're looking for intriguing, fun stories, um, but also some hard-hitting commentary, things that are going on um, in the culture that Christians care about or should care about and know about. For example, uh, just so our audience knows, because we talked about this yesterday, I am a frequent on-air critic of the uh, so-called uh, prosperity gospel, which I think is heresy. But you guys have, you know, there's a proverb that says one man's story seems true to hear the other side. You guys have Paula White's version of events <laughs> up there on Faithwire. And I think our audience should go and, and check that out and listen to what she has to say and uh, compare it to what we said on our show last night and make up their own minds. I like that approach to what you guys do, Billy, and it's been a pleasure having you on tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thank you. That's Billy Hallowell from uh, Faithwire.com. Easy to remember, faithwire.com. And, and here's the headline on the piece. Pro-Trump pastor has been called a heretic, an apostate, an adulterer, a charlatan. Now she's hitting back. And she does describe some of her views. So I'd go there and check them out for yourself. And then I'd, you know, check out some of what she has said and done to see if what she's claiming she believes she actually does. More in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. 
Politics is a contact sport. The Steve Day Show. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Let's get some reaction to what we just heard from Billy Hallowell over at FaithWire.com and talking about the overall state of faith in America, how this last election did or didn't impact it, uh, as well as the, 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 the true worldviews of members of Congress. What's to not to you, Aaron? Well, first of all, uh, yes, we are, and we, we know this, this is obvious, we, we are at war against uh, an ideology, and we always will be as the church. People of faith will always be battling against uh, those who want nothing to do with a transcendent standard, nothing to do with the concept, even the concept of God. We'll always be warring against that. But at the same time, we're not victims here. We're not victims. Yes, the mainstream media is controlled by progressives, and that's uh, it's harder for us to get our message out on mainstream airwaves. But I think what the issue is is that Christians in the United States and the church at whole is suffering an identity crisis of sorts. We featured a sermon that you gave at your home church, Steve, while you were gone. Uh, I think it was titled, Christianity Isn't What Most Americans Think It Is. And that really hit on this concept of we're not doing a good job, a good, nearly good enough job of actually defining what it is uh, that we believe. And I think we need to um, stop hiding and uh, burying our heads in the sands and congregating in our little um, uh, evangelical or Christian uh, tribes. We need to actually do what he said, be willing to do the uh, tougher jobs, the behind-the-scenes jobs as it pertains to the media, and be willing, really willing to go where uh, we haven't been willing to go in the past. You know, when Billy and you were talking about, uh, am I really a Christian? What is that? A, a version of that dialogue happens with myself, in my own head and in my own heart, every single day. And we are living in the middle of a Matthew seven twenty three time right now. I never knew you. Get away from me, you evildoer. I mean, the things that we will simultaneously, in the same breath, say, I'm a Christian, but I am a Christian, and I am a Christian then, and except yes, we 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 can't be that wrong. And I go back to the, your lament at the beginning of the show and what I said yesterday. Hey, we can't be that wrong and have an optimistic viewpoint of 2017 and beyond. One of the issues that um, we have in our culture. Sorry, I just took a sip of water. Had a little air bubble there. One of the issues that we have in our culture, though, is even in our declining state we have an extraordinary amount of freedom as a people and you know one of the things saint peter says in the scriptures is you know you were called to be free but do not use your freedom to indulge your sinful natures right and so with the loss of that of those pulpits ablaze with righteousness that de tocqueville wrote about 200 years ago um with with the loss of uh, now, community standards nowadays is an Obamacare regulation. It's it's not a moral expectation as it was for so many eras prior to our own. With the loss of those restraining bolts, to use another Star Wars reference here tonight, with those things gone now, it is so easy to use our freedom to indulge ourselves. 
It is so easy to use our freedom to say, I am this, but. Particularly when there is an indus- a cottage industry to, to aid and abet you doing so, to reward you for doing so. For example, the story of the gospel singer who uh, talked about uh, what the Bible says about homosexuality mm-hmm. about a week ago. The story of her getting her appearance canceled on Ellen yesterday. Did you guys hear about this? Yep. No. Yeah, she was scheduled to appear on Ellen, and Ellen got a lot of, of, of pressure from Rainbow Jihad groups, and so she canceled her appearance. I was relieved when I saw this. Because I don't know this woman at all. I don't want to think this. But how many times have we seen one of our people, when they say something bold, and then they get invited into the system, and instead of using the system to advance their message the way Paul did when he was on trial, for example, they go there and capitulate. And they say, well, that's not what I really meant, right? I was, I was anticipating those stories were coming today and tomorrow, that she was going to evolve. And so when I actually saw that Ellen had canceled the appearance, I, I kind of thought to myself, and maybe this is not, I'm sure it's not the right reaction, but it's the one that I had, was, whew, we probably dodged a bullet there. Maybe she, maybe did, she may have done this gal, this gospel singer, may have done her a favor. But that's, that's sort of what we're talking about here. Are we willing, if they even offer it to us, are we willing to use the raw material at our disposal in our culture to tell our story or not? Or do we? Or when we get there, do we decide? Well, we kind of need to tell their story instead. You're listening to Steve Dace. He has not yet begun to offend. This is Steve Dace. Have something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. See, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We got to get some buzz going. Yes, this is the Nightly Buzz, where we go back, take a look at some of the stories from earlier in the evening we didn't have a chance to get to, because even in three hours, we can't possibly cover everything. So we set some time aside for our producer, Aaron, to report back from creepily peering over your shoulder to see what you're talking about on social media or that lingering guy at the water cooler who you know is listening, but he's pretending not to, right? So he reports back with what is the buzz. We've got the hot takes. Thank you, Steve. As the Texas court issued an injunction uh, protecting doctors and the families they serve from a mandate uh, as a part of Obamacare that would have forced doctors and health care providers to violate their medical judgment and provide procedures, including gender transition services and abortions. The mandate is a 362-page regulation that claims to interpret uh, part of the Affordable Care Act and would have gone into effect January 1st had the court not acted before the end of 2016. That court ruling came after eight states, an association of almost 18,000 doctors, and a Catholic hospital system challenged a new federal regulation that requires doctors to perform gender transition procedures on children, even if the doctors believes the treatment could harm the child. What a stupid time to be alive. I, I just, the fact we're even debating these things. I mean, the fact that these things even have to be debated. 
there was a story last night, uh, some state somewhere or some judge somewhere, I don't remember which it was, mandating that transgendered men get their cervical exams covered. Why would a, when did men start having a cervix? Do you know? If he has a cervix, what, if, 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 if she has a cervix, what would she be? She? She'd be a she. Yeah, yeah. Todd, you're what, 44 years old? I am. When's the last time you went in for that annual cervical exam? It hasn't happened in my memory. No, you can't think of it. You, you sure you you might be at risk. You're behind, and you're a bigot too, by yeah, the way. And, and you're a bigot. I should schedule one of these along with my prostate exam. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's just a stupid time to be alive. It's just a stupid time. I was I made the distinction between insurance and healthcare in the show. It's important to show the distinction here between healthcare and witchcraft. <laughs> Is there a distinction? Well, there should be, but we have blurred the lines to the point of perhaps no return, I fear. Next story, uh, world-traveling chef Anthony Bourdain. You ever seen any of his uh, shows? I know who he is, but I, I don't watch I, a lot of those cooking shows. The uh, one I do like, you know, there's a one that the kids will watch, like Cupcake Wars or one of those, you know? Oh, this is different. Okay, this is, is this different? This um, is a great show. I, I like the guy, the, the one guy who gets in his, uh, uh, his ragtop or his convertible. And he goes to places like Zombie Burger here in Des Moines. Sure, diners, drive-ins, and dives. Yeah, that, I, I, I've watched that show a few times because that guy actually goes places and yeah. eats food I would actually eat. Yeah, you know? see, Anthony, Anthony Bourdain, I think he's most well-known for uh, Parts Unknown, right? Yeah, now he's got a show on CNN. Okay. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, and that's the show that I've liked best from him is The Layover, where, where he does exactly what you were describing, Steve. Well, he, he's no fan of Trump, but he's also no fan of many of his fellow liberals either. In an interview with the Reason magazine, he said, I've spent a lot of time in gun country, God-fearing America. There are a hell of a lot of nice people, of, uh, nice people out there who are doing what everyone else in this world is trying to do, the best they can to get by and take care of themselves and the people they love. When we deny them their basic humanity and legitimacy of their views, however different they may be from ours, when we mock them at every turn and treat them with contempt, we do no one any good. Nothing nauseates me more than preaching to the converted. The self-congratulatory tone of the privileged left just repeating and repeating and repeating the outrages of the opposition. This does not win hearts and minds. He's exactly right. I mean, I mean, another video today with Hollywood celebrities doing a montage against Trump. I mean, this this stuff is helping Donald Trump. He he is exactly correct about that. Um, there's a guy. There's a conservative on Twitter, John Ekdahl. Who put out a tweet last night? I saw that. You see this? Yes. So the top three selling vehicles of 2016 were all trucks, variations of trucks. And all he did was put out a tweet asking how many members of the mainstream media <laughs> own, know somebody that owns a truck. And the way they reacted, you guys have heard me say so many times over the years, you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yelped is the one you hit, right? <laughs> the way they reacted like he had attacked them, he just asked a question. <laughs> That's all I did. How many members of the media so know somebody that owns a truck? And the way that they went off, the way they just lost it on him is exactly, is it Bourdain? Is that how Bourdain, it was? Bourdain, yeah. That's exactly what he's describing. And if he's a liberal, he should be upset. Because they have created a dynamic by, by which they can't beat Donald Trump because the... The, the, the main aspects of their character, of, of, of their own characteristics, characteristics, actually boost Trump's persona. 
they are the best get-out-the-vote effort, Todd, that he has. Yeah, and Anthony Bourdain, the, the, the secret to him understanding this is he's not a limousine liberal. He, he He's wealthy, but he travels the world and goes to the poorest of places, uh, again, across the globe. But he also did a show from the heart of uh, Mississippi, if I'm not mistaken, the Bayou Country. It, it was absolutely fascinating, and he tells people stories by sitting down and having a meal with them. Like he said, he gets to know Everybody, we are terrible in that about that in that country. Both sides, our side needs to do better as well. Next story: Both New Year's Eve college football playoff semifinals drew a bigger television and online audience than the games last year, but there still were far fewer people watching the games than when they were played on New Year's Day two seasons ago. Well, they're not. They're saying they're not going to do this anymore. And and ESPN's had a tough year, and this just made it worse. I mean, Michigan and Ohio State got the same rating. That the two playoff ratings, two playoff games did, which is spectacular for a regular season game. It's the highest rated regular season game uh, in at least a decade. But given the amount of money ESPN is paying Todd for those playoff games, you're not paying that kind of money to get the same rating that you would get at one o'clock Eastern the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Okay, so they and whoever came up with this idea was a numbskull. And the fact that they doubled down after last year and did it two years in a row is unbelievable to me. Well, it's unbelievable. We can't make progress with the NCAA a lot of times because of how much money they're making. This is a sign of how broken things are. They're not even good at making money, apparently. This is just awful. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Putting the fun back in Fundamentalist, The Steve Day Show. All right, we're approaching the end of the hour here. Aaron, you got uh, one or two other uh, buzz stories you want us to touch on before we run out of time? Yep, uh, one more story, Steve. Uh, New York students whose families earn $125,000 or less would pay nothing for tuition at a two- and four-year public colleges under a plan unveiled Tuesday. New York students whose uh, family... Uh, families earn less than that would pay nothing. Uh, this is a plan that was created by Governor Andrew Cuomo. It's similar to what Hillary Clinton proposed for public colleges across the country during her presidential campaign. And that is, uh, again, $125,000 or less. What could go wrong, Steve? I don't know. You tell me. You're the recent college student here in the in the studio. What could go wrong? I'm seeing a lot, in lo- a lot more of my comrades, and rightfully so, um, just forego college because they don't I, they can't go without getting into debt and so they're telling themselves well you know what um, this is not really worth it now that is contrary I, I'm seeing a lot more of my comrades I think the nation at whole it's contrary to uh, what's been told to uh, young people for decades now which is you have to go to college to be able to get a job and you can't get a job without having a college degree which is just i think any more that's more and more false but at the same time um i I know a lot of people in my generation love them some free uh, free money as it were and they'll jump at this chance how many people in your generation uh pay taxes other than when they, you know, a sales tax, an excise tax, and the gas tank. But, I mean, uh, are, really are paying taxes right now. Really have to go hire an accountant to work things out for them. You know what I'm trying to say? 
Uh, I can count on my finger. Uh, I can probably count on one hand the that, number of people. That I know. well, first of all, and I would guess you know, a lot of the people you know went to college, mm-hmm. and the fact that they are not making that sort of standard of living, I think, speaks volumes mm-hmm. already. But but secondly, that would indicate that that they haven't been taught what the meaning of free is yet. <laughs> Todd is smiling, but they haven't been they haven't been taught that word to the Marxist does not mean. Yeah. What you think it means. Free for me, but not for thee. Yes. That's why I applaud this. Laboratory of Democracy. Let's play this thing out. Let's yeah. everybody look this thing hard and cold in the face. I don't, you know what? That's a good take, actually. Uh, that, I, read, I read earlier today, New York and New Jersey are leading the nation in states, states people are fleeing from, moving so, away from. So you know what's going to happen next? The taxes are going to get higher and more people will More people will, will, will bolt. That's because it, the cost has to come from somewhere. You know, Bernie Sanders, for all of his talk, about free love and free education owns not one, not two, but three. Uno, dos, tres, once, twice, he times a Haiti buckwheat, three homes. He owns three homes, okay? So those Marxist professors preaching income inequality on that campus aren't going to show up for work without tenure and a salary, all right? That money's going to come from somewhere. So if you're not going to pay it up front, you'll pay for it later on. Then you remove the incentive. I, I think it's free, so yeah. Let me let me get a degree in art design with a, with a minor in Baroque architecture. Yeah, yeah why not? It's just going to come from Obama's staff. Yeah, somebody else is paying for it anyway, right? Why not? You're listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. We're back with hour number three here tonight on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Coming up in about 15 minutes, our very first Worldview Wednesday of 2017. And we're going to begin with New Year's resolutions for the church in America. Hopefully that will turn out to be a fascinating conversation. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. It's time for three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. That time of the night when our producer Aaron gets to ask us any three things about any three things. He can ask any questions he wishes, but he must answer the same questions himself. A little check and balance action there. Aaron, you may fire when ready. Thank you, Steve. I've been seeing these stories about uh, different uh, Hall of Famers for the uh, National Football League who are potentially going to get into the Hall of Fame uh, class of 2017. And these are guys now that, uh, you know, people like Kurt Warner, LaDainian Tomlinson, guys that I've actually, you know, grown up watching, which is kind of interesting for me. But it's got me thinking about greatness a little bit. And uh, my question for you all is... 
Is greatness one thing to you, or does it change? Your definition of your greatness change depending on the context? That's a good question, because to me, greatness is like that old line from Kentucky versus Sanford, the obscenity case. I, I, I can't define it, but I know what it is when I see it, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think it can mean... I think it can mean different things to different people. I mean, if you look at it in a football context, for example. So Terry Bradshaw had actually won a couple of Super Bowls before he actually had a really good statistical season. I think it was the year that the Steelers won their third Super Bowl. He threw 28 touchdowns, which in 1978 was an astronomical number. That's a that's a very good season in our NFL today. right? Average is around, around 20 or so. Great is considered anything 32 or higher. 28 to 32 is 25 to 32 is considered a pretty good season. But in 1978, that's a great year. And you look at completion percentages, you know, um, everybody, for my favorite team, everybody's losing it. That Matt Stafford's completion percentage has dropped to like 61% since he got that finger hurt. Well, the year that Bradshaw threw the 28 touchdown passes, his completion percentage for the season is 56%. So I bring these things up because it can mean different things in different eras depending on the era in which you played. But would anybody make the argument Terry Bradshaw wasn't great? No, because he had it. He had a couple of great statistical seasons. He had the championships, right? So I, I, would, I, would, I would say Tom Brady's better. But that's on a scale of greatness. So I bring that up because I think that depending on the era in which you are living and what you are applying greatness to, it can it can evolve or even mean different things, Todd. I absolutely agree. The example I go to is uh, Derek Jeter. Af- shortly after he retired, people were comparing him to other shortstops. And you could almost find a, a better shortstop in every capacity, fielding, he was he was very good. Uh, not not Ozzie Smith, uh, great uh, power. He he did not have great power like others. Even uh, uh, you know a batting average. There are, there are others in terms of just being pure hitters or that. But that he was workmanlike on every level, and he was workmanlike in a place like New York, and he did what he did on that stage and then when you talk about great plays one of the greatest plays i've ever seen and this is a Derek jeter you know ran into the stands in the playoffs and bloodied his head but that play steve uh aaron i don't think you'll remember this but against the oakland a's he's a shortstop and the ball from right field comes off target and ends up over on the first base line between the plate and first base and Derek jeter has no business it's not his responsibility at all to be over there he goes and gets that ball, flips it backhand to the catcher, and they get, I think it was Giambi. It was one of the most brilliant plays I've ever seen in my entire life. Now, it's not, you know, diving, saving one at the wall, pulling one back in. But, yeah, it's, it's, every, every, it's very hard to define greatness without a proper context. Indeed, I think we're all in agreement that uh, it's it, greatness is something that's ethereal. It can change from uh, definitely from uh, time period to time period, and it changes depending on what you're talking about and uh, who's setting the standard as well. So I think the best thing is to go by, I know it when I see it, something like that. A question to you, what is the least prepared for a specific event or situation you've ever been in your life? Least prepared? Um... I could start. If you you go ahead. You start. Uh, I had this um, class in college one time, and I just completely whiffed. Um, 
and forgot about an assignment and realized that it was due in the morning. It was a presentation, so I had to get like a PowerPoint together and all this and that. And uh, I, I got something together. It was terrible. It was horrible. Very bad. Uh, no good. Uh, can I come up with any more superlatives for how bad it was? No, I don't think so. So I went and I did it. And uh, at the end, I had my own Jeb Bush please clap moment. Um, nobody knew when it was over because I kind of just stopped talking and then I just started clapping up there on stage in front of my whole class. Wow, that's Napoleon Dynamite kind of stuff right there. Yeah. Uh, f- for me, Todd, I, I would say the time I went to take the uh, assistant managerial exam at Quick Trip and nobody told me there, there was going to be this is going to be a, a math test. And I've talked about this before <laughs> and it was they had all these fraction <laughs> problems and I couldn't remember how to multiply and divide fractions. So I'm I ended up, up diagramming sentences and stuff. Yeah, I ended up failing the quick trip managerial exam. True story. You know, it, now that I've been on the show two years, it, it rarely happens anymore. But I was I was kind of getting used to the cadence of things. You know, you'd be saying things and and I'd be pondering them, taking next to doing a philosophical dialogue, and I hold it in, in my own head. And then all of a sudden, you would say, "Hey, and Todd, what do you think about that?" And I would, in my, I would be beavis. Uh, uh, time to make something up because I really had no idea what you were asking me. So there's been there were times in the first month of the show when I was on where I had to learn how to be on in different ways. Uh, question three. This is from Vicki Hinman who uh, wrote her question suggestions uh, to Aaron at stevedace.com, which you can do as well if you want to have a question considered for asking on this segment. This one's really tough, so I hope we're all paying attention here. What animal most represents you, and why? Wow. Spirit animal question to start 2017? Yes, because it can always get worse. Wait, wait, no, that was last year. Um, shark. I like sharks a lot. And What, they, what and, kind of shark? And, and they have... I'm just a dolphin, ma'am. A, a great white. Um, and, and they just... They, there's just a certain they're there for a reason right don't don't call a shark out and then get upset when it does what a shark does right so it has a certain function that's why it's there it's for the good of the ecosystem and the habitat and plus I just think sharks are really cool he Steve is so happy that you set him up for that. He's wanted so to tell my nephew. I read my nephew a book on two oh, books. Oh, don't start talking about dead bodies on again. Shark. No, this is my even younger nephew. He's like five years old, and he wanted to read a couple of shark books before he went to bed. What is it with people and sharks? Oh, let's see. Uh, what's the that uh, like an impala or a gazelle? Those those animals that can even outrun a, a, a cheetah, stamina wise. They're just yeah. The only impala I know is Chevy. Uh, yeah. They, Fast, but uh, over long distances. Well, can, can gazelle go- would gazelle would do that. There we go. Yeah. So to 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 sustain, to go on, to to not give up, uh, to be in it for the long haul. You could also have just gone with Energizer Bunny. That's well, spirit- you start the, the Energizer Bunny is Todd Spearney. You set the bar with Shark. I wasn't going to go Energizer <laughs> Bunny after that. True. I would have to say probably um, Komodo Dragon. Those things are freaky. I mean, and I'm freaky. <laughs> Komodo dragon. Have you ever seen that? The biggest, biggest lizard. Have you ever seen one of those? Because fruit fly wasn't available. Komodo dragon. Oh, Steve, they're, they've got venom. And I'm, they I'm can well eat aware people. of them, but just. Komodo dragon. Steve. That that would be on the what tip the of heck? your tongue. 
the Komodo dragon. Komodo dragon. Is this I this year's year? I think we must be. It's the year of the dragon. Hey, I am. I'm going to change my uh, Twitter profile to a cat, and then my Facebook profile picture to a Komodo dragon. Just, I don't think we're thinking about the same thing. I know what a Komodo, Komodo dragon Komodo is. Komodo dragons are badass, Steve. And I mean, Todd, the way that he just pounced with that. I mean, I even saw him like stand up straighter to give that answer. <laughs> he had it ready to go. He was That's proud of right. it. That's right. I think Aaron's going to ask a lot of questions this year just because he has things to say. <laughs> Probably He's going to set himself up. Probably good prediction. Yes. Worldview Wednesday is next. You're listening to Steve Dace. Are you? I personally believe elitism, Marxism, atheist, government intervention, secular humanist, liberals and conservatives, materialism, nihilism, U.S. Americans, Christian, globalist, socialist, democracy. Worldview, as the word suggests, is how we look at the world around us. How do we understand life as it hits us in the face? Libertarian. Tea Partier. The free market. Nobody is without a worldview. The only question is, is it a good one or a bad one? So it becomes the glasses, the spectacles, the filter through which they're actually seeing life. And the whole universe and the world and human life is understood through that lens. This is Steve Dace. And this is Worldview Wednesday here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. We like to call it, if you're new to our show, we like to call it your college philosophy class on the radio. And and, and the, the great thing about talking philosophy this late at night is if you're still up at this late listening to us talk philosophy, it's for one of two reasons. One, you can't sleep. In that case, philosophy is going to do the trick, man, for you right here. It's better than counting sheep. Uh, the other is uh, you can't turn your brain off. If that's the case, cool, because we're going to get you stimulated. We're going to engage those synapses, get them firing. So um, you'll you'll be even a better thinker than you were before this hour began. And I think this is why it's one of our most popular segments, because everybody is satisfied. Either it stimulated you or it inoculated you. Either way, you're satisfied customers. And don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address, D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. So this week, to welcome in and usher in the new year, we've got some New Year's resolutions for the church in America. Four that, that we want to discuss during this Worldview Wednesday. Things that if, if we were, we were going to life coach or consult with the church in America... These are the things that we would encourage them to do. Now, it should be said that there's some things that are automatics up front, right? Like every year we could say, preach more about sin and salvation. Every year we could say, make Jesus the reason for every season. But that's sort of inherent to the mission, right? That, that's, that's one of those things where somebody already... Already commanded that. It's baked into the cake. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, a, that's what we are. That's what we do. A, a much higher authority than the Steve Day Show already commanded such things. So we shouldn't have to tell you, right? Like it, you know, when I coach my kids' flag football team, I shouldn't have to coach them to catch the ball. I may have to show them how to catch the ball. But if they don't know that when the ball is thrown to them, they should catch it, they don't know that. We're all wasting our time here. You know what I'm trying? I mean, some things are just automatics. 
So there are some of those big picture things. We stayed away from those. Because as Aaron just said, they're, they're baked into the cake. These are things we shouldn't have to say. And if we had to say them, there wouldn't be a church in America to suggest resolutions to. We'd be having to start it. Right? So these, if you're wondering, well, why didn't you mention this? That's our little disclaimer. We are assuming there's a certain base level of expectation that goes in with being a church. That an authority higher and better than us has already defined and ordained, we shouldn't have to repeat or second. Okay? So these are things that are unique for the era that we live in right now. Number one, we touched on this a little bit last night during three questions, but I want to reiterate it. And I want to reiterate it by reading you something. Yet she multiplied her harlotries, remembering the days of her youth, when she played the harlot in the land of Egypt. There she lusted after her lovers, whose penises were like the penises of donkeys, and whose semen was like the issue of horses. Thus you longed for the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians handled your bosom because of the breasts of your youth. Now imagine you walked into a church this Sunday and the pastor or the, or the priest before the homily or the pastor before the sermon stood up and he said, open your Bibles to Ezekiel 23.20. Today's scripture reading will be conducted by... This is not appropriate, Steve. Yes. Folks would lose it. I mean, lose it. I'd be Buddy from Elf. You did it! (laughs) (laughs) It's the most metal Bible passage ever. World's best coffee. You did it! But can you imagine imagine the blue hairs? Chest grabs... All over the sanctuary. Can you, I mean, call nine, somebody call 911. Another one bites the dust. Right? Can you only imagine? Jesus wouldn't have said that. A, a lot of churches roll tape all the time these days, don't they? Yes. Because you'd have to pull that up and watch yes. that over and over again. Now, of course, Grandma has six kids, 12 grandkids, and all of them required semen in order to be conceived. So she's not foreign to the substance, but somehow. Hearing it alluded to in church, even from the word of God itself, has put her over the edge. That's just not done, Steve. It's not. Now, I'm not saying every Sunday do stuff like this, because is this language everywhere in the Bible? No. You should check your motivation for why you would do something like this as well. But it's in there It's in there in some places, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Why? Because there are some times that are so dark... There are, some, there are some minds that are so warped, some souls that are so broken, they require the rhetorical variation of a slap and a hard one in order to get their attention, to wake them up, to get them to come to grips. This is why the coach yells at you at halftime when you sucked in the first half. Do you realize there's no, we, we wasted half the game and now we've only got another half to make up all the ground we've already lost? Do you understand the sense of urgency of this moment? Do you get it? 
parents would be like, my kids have never heard such language. Kids don't read the Bible. Kids don't read the Bible. My point being, our first resolution is this. At least one time this year, pick something provocative and controversial in the past you would have dared not touch and preach on it. We just went through judges at my church during the election. Some very sad scenes. The, so, the sort of stories that are the stuff of reality television. Except this was the ultimate reality. This was the history of God's people preserved for us to know. Why? Because we're capable of the same things. Because we're no different than them. We just have different toys. That's all. More technology. That's all. But in our hearts, they can be just as foolish and darkened as the time of the judges. Enough antibacterial wipe preaching. Enough antiseptical preaching. Enough the, the message has to be done in 20 minutes, otherwise everybody gets bored. If that's the case, you suck at this and go do something else. Because it took God a lot longer than 20 minutes to tell his story. And sometimes the story he has to tell us isn't comfortable. You're listening to Steve Dace. What a blaze of glory sounds like. The Steve Day Show. So our first New Year's resolution for the church in America in 2017 is to find something uncomfortable, disconcerting, controversial, at least once. Preach on it. Fervently. Don't contrive anything. And, and not... Not tongue-in-cheek. Not for effect. But for effect. I mean, you're trying not to effect people. You're trying to affect them. Right? We have a tendency, just like we did when we were kids in school, go sit in the same seats by the same people. This is a culture, this last election notwithstanding, is going to continue to actively seek to get us outside of our comfort zones and we need to start preparing our people for that on Sunday mornings. And is this I mean, this resolution seems more aimed towards pastors. Would you say it's appropriate for uh, parishioners or just people um, in churches to you know, so encourage much, their pastors to yes, preach on something like this? They're going to do this. They will be willing to do this if, if you will encourage them. Sure. This also goes for small groups. You know, a lot of ministry gets done on a, on a personal level nowadays or, or in home groups. In those situations as well. Right? Now, if, if you are a very respected pastor in your church, then you probably have the freedom to stand up and, and take your congregation some places that maybe somebody who's newer or younger does not. I wouldn't suggest just rolling out your small group with stuff what I, like I just quoted one, you know, one Wednesday night when nobody saw it coming. But you know what? Sit down as a group. Next time you get together and say, hey, let's do something uncomfortable. Let's do something that gets us out of our comfort zones. Right? Let's do Song of Songs. Let's see what happens. Do something like that. Something we would have just glossed over before and said, we're not ready for that. 
When are you ever ready for it? It's there for a reason. Use it. Our second resolution. Recognize the moral crises of this age outside of the times set aside to do so. For example, it is January. Soon we'll have the annual March for Life. Will your church ever mention the mindless slaughter of 4,000 innocent children every day again the rest of this year or just the Sunday before the march when the packet comes in from National Right to Life or the local pastoral council or the church council or the diocese that has the suggested talking points for the message, the homily, the sermon? Will it ever, will it ever get mentioned in your congregation ever again other than that moment set aside to do so? Find some time to address the hottest places that hell is operating in your culture other than the occasions we set aside that give you permission to do so. Because hell didn't just just didn't say, well, you know what, you did this one day in January, so we will just stop killing all those babies now. That doesn't mean, by the way, to turn your... To turn your ministries into a means to an end on any political or moral issue of the age. That's not the, the point. The gospel is the point. But if the gospel cannot, cannot answer or resolve or challenge the darkest places in a culture in any given age, most people are going to look at the gospel and say, your gospel has no power. And so this is an attempt, in my view, to show off. This is an attempt to show, you know what? Every now and then, folks just be, need to be reminded this is a fully armed and operational battle station. Because, you know, it's not just the people in our churches who get comfortable. Hell gets comfortable. Because they know, they, they know, just, hey, you know what, we'll just hide out down here in hell this one Sunday in January when you all mention the life issue, and we'll just go about our business with the, the next batch of George Tillers and Kermit Gosnells the following Sunday, because you'll forget about us. One Sunday when the demons in hell are least expecting it, roll in, open up that weapon that you're carrying when you get to that pulpit, and just fire a bazooka shot across their bow when they don't see it coming. I think the most important thing that you just mentioned is not uh, that this is some sort of means to an end. Your motive, uh, motive is what gives a thing power. If your motive is just some sort of worldly or your idea of uh, a good uh, um, you know, end to uh, some situation, if that's just your motive, that's not going to go anywhere. If your motive is the gospel, if your motive is a higher power than anything this world uh, can know on its own devices, that is the thing that will give you power. So motives, again, very important in this, uh, in this equation, I think. You know, in the Catholic Church, between the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist, we have the petitions, the the, the prayers of the, the faithful that we, we say collectively. And it's a perfect opportunity. People kind of sleepwalk through that. They're kind of rote. You could wake people up. It wouldn't even merit any further commentary. But afterwards, they say, did you hear what they said? Mm-hmm. You get people talking. There's all kinds of ways to do this, as you said, Steve. Because if these are the darkest places that hell inhabits in your culture... There are people in your pews who inhabit some of those places as well. And they need the light. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace.
No wasted ammo. This is Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review. It's our first Worldview Wednesday of the year. We've got some New Year's resolutions for the church in America, two down and two to go. It is not often that um, that, that you will hear the likes of, uh, of Rick Warren quoted favorably from the likes of me. And it's not because um, I'm, I'm, I'm a critic of everything he's done. I think he's done some really cool things, some things that have a very positive impact on me. And then he's done some things that I think, I, I think he's been a trendsetter. I think he has created some trends that have been very good for the church. And I think he has created some trends that have given the church to retreat, an excuse to retreat away from a couple of resolutions we've already mentioned, for example. But I was invited to a VIP lunch with him last year. And he said something that has stuck with me ever since I was there. In fact, I have quoted it numerous times. And there were about oh, two, three hundred of us in this room and at this luncheon. And he held up his, his mobile phone. And Warren said, this is the city gate of your era. The whole world is in here. If you are not in here, then you are not in the world, let alone not of it. You are irrelevant in the lives of most of its people. And so if I had a third resolution, it would be to go digital. Make the gospel agile, mobile. And a lot of people are doing that already. But I think... And in this case, I'm primarily talking to the local church. Now, does your local church have a Facebook page? Even if it's just 15 people in your own congregation that check it out. But do you make yourselves as accessible as you possibly can in the world in which we live? We do not live in a world anymore where... Barring unforeseen circumstances, people look to be inconvenienced. So you have to go to them. Yeah, I mean, this is what the great prophet Sam Kinison was talking about when he said, move where the food is. You have to go to where they are. There are studies out right now that just show you we spend an extraordinary amount of time tinkering with our phones, checking them out dilly-dallying with them while we're watching TV. Right? I mean, they, they are an appendage to most of us. Do we have our message there? Is it accessible to that world? Does your local church put all their messages online that are easily in an easily downloadable format? That any mobile device, particularly a phone, could pick it up and listen to it. I think we've got to be more intentional about embracing the technological age in which we live. I think that's uh, good words, and uh, it's it's easy for people to get information uh, on their in, in the palm of their hands, as you've uh, mentioned, Steve. 
it's also really easy for us to actually put that information. It's easier than it's ever been for anybody to put anything in the palms of other people's hands. So that's very important. Uh, along this lines, not necessarily digital, I, I think churches also need to have a presence, a, a bigger presence in the community, um, whether it's going to uh, events and engaging with those uh, certain events as well. Uh, just being uh, having a visible presence in whatever ways they can. I think that's important. Steve, have you ever heard of this being done? It, it, it's obviously a no-brainer on one hand. On the other hand, have you ever heard of it done to great effect where i got to tell you about how this helped, you know, maybe not revitalize the entire church, but certainly gave it new energy because I haven't heard a great anecdote. Have you? Because we we need to put some meat on this bone. Has it happened? You mean, you mean it, it has embracing to the technology? Yes. Has it really woken people, have given them truly what they need, made the gospel come? I would say my own life is a testimony to that. I mean, the the amount of, of podcasts that I immersed myself in after my conversion for the, for several years, and they weren't all orthodoxy, but I, I had to I had to I had to figure that out for myself, right? I had to I had to I had to, ha- I had to apply what I was listening to with what was actually you know said in the scriptures. But I can't tell you how much time I spent at gyms working out, listening to you know Ravi Zacharias, R.C. Sproul. Um, uh, you know, pick a name, Albert Moeller, listening to their podcasts, listening to them making the making the message accessible to me. Because here's the other thing, too, guys. Here's the other thing to consider. I know there's some concern about cannibalizing the local church, but the reality is that's an hour and a half to two hours, one time a week, up against all the other messages that we get from this culture with this technology, how many other hours a week? Just as one hour of Sunday school a week for our kids is a losing battle against the paganism they're taught the rest of the school week, works that way for adults too. Because if I'm if I'm if I'm twiddling with my phone so much of that time, what am I looking at? Garbage. Or it might not even be garbage, but it's maybe just empty calories, right? It's like cheese it's out of a out of a out of a you know vending machine. That's my point. See, the amount of messages that are being relayed to us outside of just the one service that most of us don't even attend anyway, a week at church, that's an uphill struggle from a worldview standpoint. Does your church do anything like a formally assigning homework, so to speak, so that they have to do this legwork? It's expected of them? No. And I don't know that people would do it if they did. That's why I'm talking about making it accessible and convenient. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just the era in which we live. We don't write letters, right? Fewer of us. I don't even have a landline in my house anymore. What's that? Exactly. I mean, it's just it's a different era. Embrace that era and acknowledge that it is what it is, and there's nothing that you can do about it. And make what you do accessible the rest of the week. You have no excuse not to. Right, because it's a lot cheaper to do it than yes. it even was four or five years ago. Yes. All right, one more resolution for the church next. Listening to Steve Dace. The 
the truth, straight, no chaser, Steve Dace. All right, one more New Year's resolution for the church in 2017 here to wrap it up on a Worldview Wednesday. Several years ago at a, a church we used to attend, I was asked to put together a Worldview curriculum that I would then do a sermon series on that, at, at that church on this curriculum. And I said, no, I won't do it. And they asked me why, and I said, it's because if I, if I jump to teaching a Worldview curriculum with where the average worldview in our church is right now. Many of the people here will agree with it, but it's because we're white, we live in the suburbs, and most of us have a Bush Cheney bumper sticker right next to the Jesus fish on our cars. They'll agree with it because it looks like the Republican Party platform. That's, that's not the right motivations. You guys are asking me to do something, but we've skipped a step here. And so they asked me, the leadership of this church asked me, then, well, what do you, what, what's the step you think we've skipped? I said, spend a year or six months or some indeterminate time and do a series on Sunday mornings when the crowd is really here. Not Sunday nights when people come voluntarily who are really committed, but Sunday mornings when even the, the riffraff is here, the hangers on. You're going to do a series called The Fundamentals. And people need to know why Jesus had to be born of a virgin, why the Bible can be believed, why he had to die, and evidence that he rose again. You're going to teach the fundamentals of the faith. What do the Ten Commandments really mean? Why is it wrong to lie? And then once we establish that framework, that foundation, I'm happy to then put something together about how to apply it in the time in which we live today. That conversation was over 10 years ago. I think it's even more prevalent today. You know, we are asking many of our people to apply a worldview they don't have, and no one can rise above their own worldview. So, so we need to get back to teaching the fundamentals. I know the term fundamentalism has a negative connotation, but originally it began because a couple of rich guys were concerned about the church in their era losing its worldview. So they published these little tracts and newsletters called The Fundamentals. And out of their own pocket, they paid for them to be shipped all over the country to encourage believers so they could defend their faith. You know, it is a command for us to be able to defend our faith. How many of the people in our churches can defend their faith? Because if they can't defend their faith, they will never then attempt to move in the offend with their faith. They will not play offense if they can't play any defense. Gentlemen, your thoughts to close us out quickly. Quickly, I, I think that's absolutely right because people aren't going to care about your worldview unless they have answers to those basic questions. They don't really have the right answers, or at worst, they don't even care. Going on offense is never wrong. But it begins by having a good defense. John 317. You're listening to Steve Dace. 